0: All right. Can you introduce yourself and uh, tell us what you cover at The
1: Journal? My name is Katie Honan. I am the City Hall reporter for the Greater New York section at The Wall Street Journal. So I cover a lot of different New York City things, but for the last year, just mainly COVID. Can you believe we've been doing this for one year? How do you feel? Right now, I feel very tired and um I can't believe it's been. I mean, it is the type of thing where I cannot believe that an entire year passed and we were right back here in March and I'm still in my bedroom (laughs) reporting. One place that Katie's been reporting on is Elmhurst Hospital. So Elmhurst Hospital is one of the 11 public hospitals here in New York City. It is right in the middle of what could be the most diverse part of New York City, if not the country right at this intersection of Jackson Heights and Elmhurst, two neighborhoods in Queens that are incredibly diverse. The most language spoken in any neighborhood in New York City. And early on in the pandemic, what happened to Elmhurst Hospital? So Elmhurst, certainly here in the city and around the country, but perhaps even globally, became what was seen as the epicenter of the city's COVID virus spread at what was our peak in late March into April. Overnight, the gravity
2: of the crisis became painfully clear at
1: Elmhurst Hospital. Inside the hospital, a biomedical battlefield, the emergency room is packed with patients.
2: Outside
3: Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, long lines of people, the same hospital that used a refrigeration truck
1: this week to hold bodies. I live a mile from Elmhurst Hospital, and it is not an exaggeration that for weeks and weeks, the sirens were 24-7. There was not a moment that I did not hear sirens for, for probably more than a month, and that is directly because of Elmhurst Hospital. A year later, Katie
0: wanted to know how the people who worked there during the peak of the pandemic are
1: coping now. I just wanted to hear from them. The press was kept out for obvious reasons from a lot of this as this was happening. People were told not to speak with reporters. But I think with a little bit of distance and time, I just wanted to know, what's it like?
0: What's it like to fight the pandemic in New York City's hardest hit hospital? To answer that, Katie spoke to three doctors about how they got through the past year. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Linbow. It's Friday, March 12th. Today, I'm going to hand the show over to Katie Honan. And she's going to tell the stories of three doctors at Elmhurst Hospital who spent the past year fighting COVID.
1: So I started interviewing Elmhurst doctors in mid-February, talking to each of them about working through the pandemic. One doctor I spoke to was Bob Thompson. He's an internist, and he's been at Elmhurst for over 20 years. Well, you
3: know, the reason why I went into medicine is I wanted to take care of people who didn't have access to care. So when I came here to this hospital, I was amazed by the New York City model in which there are these city hospitals that would take care of everyone. In this community, these people are coming from other countries where they often had no access to care. I always felt that at a place like Mount Sinai, I could be, you know, a great doctor. And if I weren't there, then there would be other great doctors. But at a place like Elmhurst, if it weren't for Elmhurst, these patients would have no place to go.
1: Bob told me about early last year when he first started hearing about a new virus in China.
3: You know, it was, a, it was a strange beginning. I remember in January, February, like many of us, we were just kind of looking at the news and thinking it was kind of interesting and odd what was going on in China. And for some reason, there was a
1: unreality, like it's not going to happen here that way. But then he said he remembers when things started to change at the hospital. When I went down to the emergency
3: room, there was this ominous sense about it. There were suddenly all these people and all the doctors were walking around with PPE. They were in goggles and hairnets and robes and gloves and of course the N95 masks and they just lived in that environment the whole time. There was no, once you stepped into the emergency room that was the the whole thing. There was this tension, it was very heavy in the air and then very quickly it it just took over the whole hospital. In a matter of days, it went from the emergency room and the ICUs to the emergency room ICUs and one or two COVID wards to every ward was full of sick patients. It was really, it was really kind of shocking.
1: At the time, there weren't that many known treatments for COVID. And as sick people started filling the hospital wards, Bob told me that he started to feel vulnerable.
3: It's strange. You, you develop a kind of a myth, I guess they describe it as, is as, as a doctor, we're the the doctors and they're the patients. They get very sick, and we do everything we can for them. But we ourselves are not going to get sick. But this is a time when you saw all these people, these pretty young people, getting severely ill and then dying very quickly in a period of a day or two. They would they would go from you can you could talk to them, you couldn't talk to them. They're intubated and they would die, and then they're replaced by another person. And it just seemed to me like this this might be the time that I would die. And, and it wasn't like I was afraid. It was just like, I guess that's what could happen. There was no separation between the patients and us. We, w- we were all in this, in this epidemic. And it was clear that it wasn't just the very old patients with many medical diseases. It was people who looked a lot like us. I looked a lot like us. These were people who would be expected to live 40 or 50 years longer, but they weren't because they got sick. Uh, I remember thinking how bitter, how bitter it was that I had spent so much of my career talking to people about taking care of their diabetes or their blood pressure, uh, trying to keep fit and active, checking blood tests, and it was all beside the point for so many of our patients because they were doing all these things and then this came and suddenly they were, they were dead.
1: After Bob left the hospital each day, he didn't feel like a healthcare hero even when people outside the hospital treated him like one. And I, I just remember when I'd come out of the hospital after
3: being in this environment and really feeling like we were failing because we weren't, we weren't saving very many of these people at all. And we'd come out and you'd see these murals and people would be clapping. And it, was just, it just seemed crazy. And, and, and that's another thing I remember, because I've always had this great affection for this area and for the people. They just seem like wonderful people working so hard, such good people against so many obstacles and barriers. And, and then this happens to them, and their response was gratitude. It just struck me as I wouldn't have expected it those times when I would, you know, get back to my neighborhood. If I got back to my neighborhood in time for 7 o'clock, which wasn't very often, and hearing people clapping, I'd like to hide. Mostly because I, I felt like it was just our job. It was nothing we we should be thanked for. It was what we were supposed to do. A lot of people had difficult jobs during this time. It was just what we were doing.
1: After the break, two more Elmhurst doctors on losing family members and a colleague And how they got through. One of the doctors I spoke with was Pilar Gonzalez. She leads
2: the pediatric department. My name is Maria Pilar Gonzalez. Jimenez Ortiz. I have a lot of names. <laughs> and just because I'm from Spain, I did my residency training here at Elmhurst Hospital, completed it in 1993, and then stay working. All my professional career is here at Elmhurst Hospital. This is my home away from home. I spend more time here than I spend at home.
1: What struck me about Pilar's story was that even though she spends a lot of time at Elmhurst, the virus first hit her in a much more personal way. Her father and brother in Spain both died of COVID in late March.
2: My father in March 26 and my brother in March 30th. My father was the tree that kind of supported my family. I have a big family. We we were six, four brothers and two sisters. And my father was very special, very stubborn, and very old-fashioned, oh my God. But then... When love came to it, he just melted like an ice cream, you know. he was kind of like an ice cream, like, <laughs> like, like kind of hardcore and kind of cold, but then the sun comes and bluff, he just melts, you know. That was my, my father. And my brother was a fighter. My brother was a survivor of multiple myeloma. And also he was like, you know, in, all, in every family there is someone always that is like, the one that everyone turns to when there is a problem because he always has kind of a solution. And you will imagine, oh my God, with all the things that he has to do for his own, how can he be offering and doing more than anybody else? And he did, because that's the way that he was since he was a child. He was a year and a half younger than me. And we did many things together. I don't want anyone to forget about them. I don't want, I'm holding on. I don't want to forget, you know, their voice, their faces.
1: While Pilar dealt with grief, she was also figuring out what her role should be at the hospital. Her job as a pediatrician had completely changed because children and their parents weren't coming in anymore. So she turned to another problem. Patients at Elmhurst were dying alone because their loved ones weren't allowed in. And she had an idea of how to fix that problem. Healthcare workers not in critical roles could use video chat to connect patients and their families. It was something doctors in Spain had done for her.
2: What I did was the consequence of being at the other side of the wall when I was calling, asking for my family, my brother and my father. And I received such a caring and loving response from the doctors that took care of them in Spain that I couldn't, I couldn't do less with my patients here. They didn't ask me for any kind of special identification. I was this lady calling from New York and they were giving me information and they were holding my hand emotionally because they knew what I could be experiencing And they wanted to help me because, you know, when things get so bad, we are at the end, we are all human beings, you know. So the same way they did with me, I tried to do it here in this other way.
1: After Pilar thought of this idea, connecting patients with their families via iPad video chats, the hospital decided to make it more formal and hand it over to the psychiatry department.
4: I'm Vladimir Gaska, I'm the director of behavioral health services in this hospital. I've been here for 21 years.
1: Vladimir started recruiting other healthcare workers to
4: communicate with the families of COVID patients. It was very scary at the beginning because we had very little knowledge at that time and what you were doing is basically risking your life for something that it was not really life-saving for the patients but it's more like a psychological intervention for the families. I don't think in behavioral health you will find any experience that is higher than that, being able to have family members see a loved one that they cannot see, communicate, or touch, you facilitating that within itself is just such an amazing uh, behavioral health intervention, even if you don't say anything.
1: He could also see his coworkers struggling. The biggest challenge came when someone from his own staff died of COVID.
4: One of my uh, nursing staff died from it. A young woman, she was in her early 40s, died from COVID. Um, And she came to the hospital and she was asking for oranges. Can I have an orange? And one of the nurses ran upstairs to get an orange for her. By the time they got there, she was dead. And it it was so devastating for them, you know, like a young woman, she was already here, you know, she died very quickly. My entire department was so devastated to hear that story. Um, So they called me and said, we need to have right away uh, a debriefing. We need to uh, meet with the staff. We need to talk about it.
1: All the doctors I spoke to say they are still processing everything that happened.
2: I have a lot of things that I have not dealt with yet. I don't think I'm the same that I was before COVID. I guess because I've seen how bad a community can be, how bad me personally I can be, and my family, I've seen desperation. Sometimes it makes you... um, There are things that to you are not so important anymore. You know what I mean? Your goals have changed. What's important to you have changed. You know, um, in terms of material things, I just can't care less. (laughs) I mean, I'm done with that. But am I burnt out or not? I don't know. Maybe I am, because sometimes, you know, like it's time to come to work. I really have to pull myself from bed and say, OK, come on, you got to go. You got you to make it happen. You got to be strong.
1: There was one place inside the hospital that Pilar told me she could go to find some solace, the hospital's remembrance room.
2: I think that the remembrance room was uh, a place that you could listen to the silence you could go there and everything in the hospital was basically devastation and and you will go there and it will be peaceful and i will go there and collect my breath and and i see i saw other people doing the same thing Um, i have not gone yet to the cemetery where my father and my brother are so it was kind of my cemetery. And even now when I go, I can at least for a few seconds think about them and everybody else that are not here with us anymore and it gives me some peace. You know what I mean? Like um I I, I feel my kind of I don't know, it's like a, a, a real strange sensation of peacefulness or closeness
1: to them. When Vladimir looks back over the past year, he told me his view
4: on life and what's important has changed. We are not uh, falling to pain and to grief and to losses. You know, in psychiatry, we have some of the most touching uh, human events, you know, like suicide and murder, you know, from People that are, you know, mentally not well. And and we have learned to be strong about those things and to go on. And this is a a huge learning experience for everybody. And as I said, very humbling. And and no more uh, suits, no more fancy shoes, no more anything. You just wanted to um, be home with your loved ones and have a meal and survive and be here the next day. For Bob, the moment things
1: changed for him was when he could actually start treating patients with therapies that work. There were these
3: ideas, these protocols, these therapies that had not been proven, but there were reports that they seemed to help, and we started using them. And it was amazing. It seemed to work. And it, it felt so good to feel like you were, you were doing something. You were taking patients who were very sick. You look at their blood tests, they were sick. You, you knew that these are the patients who the week before they would have all wound up on uh, the ICU and they would have passed away in a day or two. And you would start these therapies and they would start stabilizing and then they'd slowly get better. And then you discharge them and you do it again and again. That was what made the difference for me. But, you know, those memories that you, you've probably heard, uh, I, I went through my entire life never crying. I think. Last time I cried was probably like nine years old when I was angry about something. And since this happened, whenever I talk about it, it, it has this effect on me. So I know it's, it's affected me deeply, but um, I don't know. I just feel so relieved now that we are in this new phase. I mean, the times when I've been in a park and I've been by myself and I take off a mask and I can feel the sun on my back, that's just wonderful. It's just wonderful.
0: That's all for today, Friday, March 12th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and the Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Ryan Knutson and me, Kate Leinbaugh. I want to thank Katie Honan for taking us to Elmhurst Hospital today. Our show is produced by Catherine Brewer, Gerard Cole, Pia Gadkari, Martin Kessler, Annie Minoff, Laura Morris, Afif Nasuli, Ricky Nevetsky, Enrique Perez, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Annie Rose Strasser, and Rob Zipko. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner and Nathan Singapak. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Katherine Anderson, Bobby Lord, Emma Munger, Peter Leonard, So Wiley, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact checking by Nicole Pasulka. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.